From VinePair's New York City headquarters, this is End of Day Drinks, where we sit down with the movers and shakers in the beverage industry. So pour yourself a glass and listen along with us. Let's start the show. On today's episode of End of Day Drinks, we're finally going to get into it. Yep, we're going to talk about canned cocktails. And we're sitting down with Julie Reiner and Tom Macy, uh, the owners and founders of Social Hour. Social Hour came out of an idea that the two of them had while working together at Clover Club, one of the amazing bars that uh, Julie founded and owns. She's also really well known for Flatiron Lounge and Leenda. And Tom was one of her head bartenders. They're going to talk to us about what is causing this canned cocktail boom to happen right now, uh, where they see the white space and what is becoming a really crowded field, and how Social Hour sets itself apart. Hey, everybody. I'm Adam Teeter, uh, co-founder of VinePair. And on today's episode of End of Day Drinks, I am really excited that we're talking with Julie Reiner and Tom Macy, the co-founders of Social Hour. Um, and before we get going and introducing both of them and letting you tell themselves a little bit, uh, so telling you a little bit about themselves, I'd love to introduce who is with me today from VinePair. First, I've got uh, Josh, my co-founder. Hey, glad to be here, Adam. Yeah, man. I've got Joanna, our executive editor. Hi, Julian, Tom. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Tim, our senior staff writer. Hey, everyone. How's it going? And Katie, our associate editor. What's up, guys? Excited to be here. And Julie and Tom, I will say I uh, had the cocktails. I tried them all last Friday um, and really found them very delicious. I'm really curious to talk about sort of how you came up with the the idea, um, sort of what has sort of what was the, you know, what drove you to do it in the first place and then sort of how you see people consuming them, whether out of the can directly or, uh, you know, in another format, like in a glass over ice, but we can get to all that later. Uh, first, I'd love if you could just start the conversation by sort of introducing yourselves and your backgrounds to everyone listening. And Julie, we can start with you. Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, my name is Julie Reiner, and uh, I have been in the bar business for a very long time, <laughs> over 20 years. Um, over the, the course of that time, I've opened five cocktail bars all in New York City, uh, starting with the Flatiron Lounge in 2003, uh, followed by the Pegu Club uh, in 2005, and then out to Brooklyn, Clover Club, uh, Leenda, uh, and, and Lonnie Kai, uh, which is no longer open. Um, but yeah, so so I have sort of was on the forefront of cocktail culture when it kind of blew up again and people actually started using fresh ingredients in cocktails and uh, really thinking about uh, process with drinks and bringing back a lot of classic styles of cocktails uh, and helped to train a lot of the bartenders who went on to open their own bars uh, all over the country. Um, and have have since uh, you know started working with Tom Macy, who is a longtime uh, employee at at Clover Club, uh, who then became a partner. And and you know we tasted some some cocktails in a can and thought we could do this better. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we we went on that journey, and um, and that's uh, you know what what we're doing these days as well as teaching cocktail classes on Zoom. <laughs> My new job. <laughs> uh, yes. And um, and I am Tom Macy. Um, I uh, came along on journey, uh, Julie's journey um, in two, starting in 2009. And now that I'm actually looking at my calendar, I think tomorrow is the 12-year anniversary of my first training shift at Clover Club um, as wow. a bar back. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, 
yeah, uh, I, uh, you know, I am pretty much have become Julie's, you know, partner in cocktails over the years. I, I started as a barback, as I said, really enthusiastic to learn more. And it was just right at the right time when the industry was about to explode. And there were not a ton of uh, really well-trained cocktail bartenders. And so I was able to kind of move up uh, just sort of by being in the right place at the right time. And, you know, Julie's bars were staffed with the best bartenders out there. So I just learned from this incredible crew of people uh, how to bartend, how to create cocktails and um, moved up. I mean, it's crazy to think, uh, again, how lucky I was. I was just able to move up really quickly to bartender, then head bartender, and then uh, an opportunity be to become a partner uh, came about uh, at Clover Club in 2014. And uh, around that time is when I just started thinking about, um, you know, it's like I was at the time of my life where I had just gotten married and my wife had become pregnant. And I was like, what is, you know, what does a life in cocktails look like? And it all had happened so quickly, you know, and one of the first things I started thinking about was like, could you, it was really making a gin and tonic at home and me like obsessively micromanaging every element to try to make it perfect. And I was like, gosh, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be so cool if you could get this perfectly pre-made in a bottle. Uh, why can't I get that? And that's kind of that entrepreneurial moment that every, everyone who starts a business has is sort of like, hey, maybe I should do that, you know? Um, and that is sort of where the social story of social hour, uh, begins. So, um, you know, obviously canned cocktails now seem to be exploding. They're everywhere. Um, yeah. but obvious, but you know, I would assume when you sort of started thinking about it, that wasn't the case. Um, no. can you talk us through the process of sort of how you guys thought about doing it and what sort of like what the development process was? Cause I think it's really you know, obviously prior to this last year or two, the only like cocktails any of us knew of really that were in a can were not actual cocktails, right? It was like Smirnoff ice. It was, sure. like malt, <laughs> yeah. it was like malt, like malt beverage, you know? But I remember going to Europe and you would always see canned cocktails. I mean, now they were like Jack and Cokes, but still they were, it was actually spirit. It was actual spirit with, you know, another ingredient. Um, did you know when you thought about the idea that you could do this? And then what what went into sort of, figuring out how to do it? Well, I mean, yeah. So I had this idea um, and I immediately went online. It was one of those things like, this must exist. And I started, you know, Googling. And the only thing I could find, as you say, was uh, in Europe. And uh, it took me, you know, just a while of digging around and to figure out that it has a lot to do with taxes. Um, you know, in the United States, beer and spirits and wine are all taxed at different levels. Spirits are the most, but, and beer is the least. And so, and this is an this I've I've heard this I can't say that I've actually like confirmed it but I heard it from a reliable source that Smirnoff Ice, um, for example, um, around the world is made with Smirnoff vodka, but in the United States it's malt based because which is essentially beer uh, because it's a lot cheaper. And that sort of confirms that it that you know the reason that market didn't exist I think was just because they didn't think spirits companies didn't think there was a large enough market for it and it was just too expensive to try to break into it. Um, and I just sort of kept tinkering around um and it just i just felt like it was gonna happen it just seemed like too good of a thing to make a perfect gin and tonic which seemed entirely doable it just it i just i knew somehow that like someone's gonna do that and it's gonna be a success um and so i sort of just kept following along uh down the rabbit hole um and uh i mean you know julie and i you know i, I definitely talked to julie about it over the years and uh 
sort of experimenting at the bar with things because people were doing bottled cocktails at bars, you know, like, um, and they were playing around with carbonation. If you looked around on like cocktail blogs at the time, like Jeffrey Morgenthaler and mm -hmm. uh, those guys were doing that. So I just sort of followed that lead, Dave Arnold. Um, and we put, um, we eventually, we put a bottled Paloma on Leyenda's opening menu, which was sort of my like pet project. And it was great. Um, and it very popular. And that was kind of the moment we were like, Hey, like, we should we should sell this in stores you know right <laughs> yeah um, and we also realized that you know with like with that paloma um tom was using essential oils you know grapefruit oil right. and in the past we had always been you know we've been making palomas with fresh grapefruit juice and simple syrup and club soda and you know and tequila and we we realized that we actually we liked this better because mm -hmm. it was almost like we were making a grapefruit soda uh, and without the juice, you know, and, and yeah. so that was sort of kind of an aha moment of like, we could really do this and, and create highballs and, and put them in a can and give people real spirits, you know, in a in a can and not these malt beverage um, drinks that they right. think are that they think are cocktails, but they're really just beers in disguise. <laughs> right. Because like lima Rita's and all that were just crushing it but it was like it's not a margarita people and you just want you know, interesting you know but it was but the thing that's interesting is that like you know I, you know i i don't think i was the only one that was thinking about how do you make you know because we're all these julie starts this revolution of great cocktails and then everyone's like hey wouldn't it be great if we could have all these amazing fresh juice cocktails in a in a bottle ready to go but then of course you're like no you can't because fresh juice doesn't uh you can't if you pasteurize it it changes the flavor um mm -hmm. and it doesn't it's not stable and so it was kind of like it didn't compute the two ideas and then when we sort of figured out a way to use the bottled format sort of to our advantage you know of creating ingredients from scratch that do behave well it was that was kind of the key to figuring out making the concept uh work and initially it was highballs it was like Gin and things that don't rely on fresh ingredients, uh, you know, even a vodka soda, as you said, Jack and Coke, gin and tonic. That right. was initially the first idea. And hey, Tom, this is um, Tim here. I've got a quick question here that may be yeah. kind of slightly obvious. Uh, I hope not, but it's it's the question basically that you were asking yourself in the beginning, which is like, why apart from the pat the, the taxes that you mentioned like why didn't these products exist right what is it about a, a canned gnt for example that's difficult what why why can't you just place those two ingredients in it and package them and and you, and you know sell them is, is there an inherent challenge there um can you explain that for us i mean i think like one i asked someone who knew a lot about the industry that the pointed question of just like why doesn't this exist like what am i missing you know um, and they just said, I think because the market doesn't exist and a big company doesn't want to waste the time if they know they're going to sell 70,000 cases the first year, you know, and I saw that as a huge opportunity. It was like, well, we don't need to sell that much. We just need to sell some and sort of prove trailblaze the concept. And, you know, back then at that point, no, I thought it was going to be totally easy to make a gin and tonic in a in a can. But as Julie uh, will also attest, <laughs> it was not. <laughs> it, was, it, it was really challenging um, just to get because, you know, we had we spoke to Alan Katz, the New York Distilling Company. We've had a relationship with him for many years. Um, and uh, just it seemed that was the obvious first choice. He had gin. He had whiskey. They were great products about supplying us uh, in this venture, um, supplying his products. And he was totally down. And that was great. 
Um, but once we started formulating with the flavor house, um, where you sort of give them a, a prototype of what you want to do and they go about recreating it, it just, we realized it was a totally different animal, um, creating something in a can, uh, than it is from scratch behind a bar. I mean, the, the, the goal is the same, but the tools and the techniques are different. And, um, we didn't, it just took us a while to learn how to apply those things. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So it was like, we're building a tonic water from scratch, mm. you know, and, so the acidity, the bitterness, the the sugar content, the ABV of the drink, the carbonation levels, all of that stuff, the flavor levels of the the tonic, the quinine, it was all, I said bitterness, it was all in play. And every time you would change one thing, it would change something else. And uh, it took a long time to get our arms around that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and it didn't, I feel like in the end, there was really no, uh, there was no like, silver bullet trick it just was it was the same process that julie's gone through and that i've gone through and any bartender that knows how to make cocktails has gone through that you just have to make cocktails a lot of times badly to learn what doesn't work (laughs) and get your arms around what an ingredient how ingredient behaves you know and so that's what we did so i've got two questions sort of uh as adam again for you guys sort of maybe build on one, um, and because then I want to l- let other people on, on the team ask, but um, first question is sort of Tim and myself, when we've interviewed other, uh, you know, drinks, entrepreneurs and bartenders have sort of said like the same thing you're saying that citrus is really, really difficult and sort of their assumptions like the, the company that figures out citrus is going mm-hmm. to make a killing. Um, just because it is so hard and sort of, is that what you'd heard? And is that why you're using essential oils as a first part? And then number two, in the development of these cocktails, how much did you think about the fact that people potentially would drink them straight from the can as opposed to pouring over ice or is the intention that you hope people will pour them over ice? Um, and we talked to a lot of sort of people in the canned wine space, et cetera, some other, you know spaces that will say, oh, they never even thought about the fact that someone was drinking from a can. They always thought, oh, I drink it from a wine glass, so you'd pour mm-hmm. the wine in the glass too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the can to me always signals drink it straight from the can. Um, so I'm curious about those two points. I can I can talk about that okay. second the second question and I'll let Tom Please. talk about <laughs> citrus um, because it's something that he has geeked out about <laughs> for a very long time. Um, yeah and you know I, it's funny because we you know we have a joke within our, our group um, that we call getting canned by Tom Macy um, because he, he's so passionate about it, about That's it. True. And he's been, I can't you know, he, yeah, like if I, I, we get to a point where we're like, Oh God, I got canned by Tom today. Yeah. <laughs> so, welcome. I feel like I'm like a, I feel like I'm a tea kettle or something. It's yeah, just welcome like to I... the club. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, when it we it was very important for us. So so I'm from Honolulu. I'm from Hawaii, and you know I where there's a lot of outdoor activity, right? Um, going up to a waterfall on a hike or being at the beach, and you know. So when we were talking about creating these cocktails, uh, and Tom and I were tasting all of these different variations, we would taste them straight out of the can, um, or, and also over ice with a garnish without a garnish um, because it was very important to us that all of them were really delicious straight out of the can and that they didn't necessarily need to have a squeeze of lime or a squeeze of lemon or you know with the cocktail um, because we do we, you know we, we pictured people on boats or at you know you know at a hike or whatever where you don't necessarily have those things 
Um, and, you know, we, that it, it just would give a much broader appeal. So, you know, we, we wanted to make sure, like with the gin and tonic, for example, that it had enough acidity where it almost feels like there is a squeeze of lime or a squeeze of lemon in the can. Um, yeah. You know, and that being said, I think that if you pour it over ice with a lemon squeeze, it's delicious. I personally like it better with lemon, but you know, it, it had to be really crushable and delicious straight out of the can and didn't require ice. Yeah. It is an interesting thing too, because having tasted some other of the, some of the other products out there, it's like, it's clear that they are meant to be poured over ice and yeah. it, it is, it's just an interesting, the whole thing is interesting because everyone is consumers, retailers, producers, distributors, we're all figuring out, you know, what people want and how they drink these things. And uh, yeah, I, we always wanted it to be, uh, we wanted to be able to be great out of the can. But I, I also, I think I'm realizing more too, that I want people to to think about bringing social hour home and pouring it over ice and still like fixing themselves a nice cocktail, you can put a garnish on it. And, and it, it really does enhance the like experience. It gives it that like fixing yourself a cocktail feel. And I don't want it to sort of only be, you know, outside on the go, but again, it's like, we're finding out, you know, um, as for juice. Uh, yeah. I mean, I didn't just didn't want to touch that at the beginning. Cause, um, you know, the, the cocktail like Renaissance has been built on the back of freshly squeezed juice. Cause it's just, so amazing when you have never had a daiquiri made with fresh lime juice and then you do it's just this revelatory experience so mm -hmm. we didn't want to touch it mm -hmm. um and i mean i nothing is completely set in stone but we are working on some new things uh for 2021 i have sort of built this like well not built i've just sort of acquired a bunch of ingredients and i've been like formulating in like my own personal lab in my parents basement <laughs> all winter long um but I feel like I'm now getting a little, I, because we've had all this time working on formulating cocktails in a can, I feel like I'm a little more emboldened to take more chances. And I, I, I am trying to push like, how can we, yeah, you know, it's like, I think about, it's like, how can we figure out these problems instead of just trying to avoid them, you know, mm -hmm. because eventually there's not going to be, everyone's kind of doing a lot of the same ideas, you know, there is a lot of, and it's all, to be honest, you know, everyone's using flavor extracts, um, and which are, you know, high quality, all natural, and they're, and some of them are really, really great and totally at the level of quality that we would use behind the bar at Clover Club. Um, but it's, I think that is limited. And I, I am definitely interested in exploring like, what else can you do with a cocktail in a can? Kind of like, you know, Julie started that in 2003 at Flatiron Lounge was like, what's possible? And there's now there's been 20 years of all this just amazing experimentation in cocktail bars. And I feel like we're kind of at that point again now with canned cocktails. So it's exciting to, to, you know, be sort of trying to rewrite those rules. Mm -hmm. And I know that's sort of vague, but I feel like I just don't have enough hard to, I don't have any big announcements yet, but I were working on solving. All good. Problems. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering, this is Katie, by the way, I was wondering how you kind of ended up coming to the conclusion of, which cocktails specifically you were going to offer? How did you come to these three specifically? And then also, how did you decide on which spirits brands for the G&T and the Whiskey Mule? Um, well, Alan Katz uh, at New York Distilling uh, has been a friend of mine, you know, from the early Flatiron Lounge days. Um, and, you know, we are big supporters of his, of his products. And so, you know, when we first started 
talking about doing the cocktails, we liked the angle of um, it being a, a Brooklyn, you know, through and through, uh, being that, you know, his his ragtime rye and his Perry's Todd Gin is all they're all made in Brooklyn as well. So it really it, it fit with our story. Uh, he was very helpful, uh, you know, when we originally kind of went to him to just get some advice and talk to him about what our ideas were um, and and was really excited about it and open to le- letting us use his products. Um so, you know, the, it, it fit, it fit the bill. Um, you know, we originally did, if we're talking about, you know, doing a Paloma, but acquiring tequila is a little bit more complicated. And so we mm-hmm. decided that we would start out with, um, you know, the, his uh, gin and tonic with his gin and the whiskey mule. And then the Pacific spritz, you know, is a wine base um, that Tom uh, acquired the wine for. So. Yeah, up in the Finger Lakes. Um, it was a, yeah, we, we were definitely, we, I mean, I think Julie and I have always talked about, well, we've built a lot of, designed a lot of menus together and we always are think about the slots to appeal, we want to, to appeal to the widest possible group of people. And not everybody likes the same kinds of cocktails. And so it was important to us that we sort of felt like we cast a wide net with the styles. And so we had the gin and tonic and the mule pretty much locked in from the beginning. We knew we wanted those two. Um, and then the third one, we had a sort of, we threw a few ideas around and then, yeah, this, then all of a sudden it was like, Oh, this a spritz, you know, it's, we doesn't need fresh ingredients. Um, and that is sort of how we went down, down that path of yep. uh, exploring and that. Tom and I do, um, like the jazz age lawn party every year, you know, we do all of the cocktails for it and we do a ton of spritz cocktails there. Um, you know, so it is really one of those kind of summer, you know, just delicious drinks. And it's actually something that people drink all year long and people are kind of obsessed with spritzes, um, these days with different, different types of, um, uh, you know, Italian bitter spirits. And, and so, you know, we, we really wanted to, um, head in that direction, uh, and then also, you know, add a little bit of a tropical flavor note to it. So we went with passion fruit because we really liked um, the way that it played in the drink. Um, yeah. So yeah. I had a, a Josh here. I had a question about uh, the spritz. Um, since that is a wine base, as you mentioned, is that something that is easier to distribute, something that you're able to get out there wider? Um, versus the difficulty of, you know, spirit base. This gets into the wonderful world of TTB wonkiness, which <laughs> I'm so happy we're here. Um, <laughs> um, basically, uh, uh, it's uh, it's actually technically a, a spirit based uh, in the eyes of the U.S. federal government. It's a distilled spirit specialty is how it's classified. And that's because the uh, aperitivo uh, is has neutral grain spirit as its base. Um, and we, uh, just by it's, it has to do with proportions of ABV and stuff. Um, but we kind of nudged in the direction of a distilled spirit, specialty specialty purely so that we could keep everything under the, under one roof. Cause then it's like where you actually have it produced. Not everyone has a wine license and a spirits license. And it just seemed like it was going to create too many problems. Um, had we only gone with a wine base, uh, yes, I, there are some places that have like a beer and wine license. And it's still honestly kind of gray to me because it, it's state by state and all that. Um, I think some places can carry the spritz, whereas they can't carry the other ones. 
Um, and I don't fully get it, uh, but technically it is spirit based, but it's still about half wine. It makes no sense. Like the laws, <laughs> yeah. laws are just so. As, as you know, liquor laws are crazy in this country. You know, every state is totally different, which is another learning curve <laughs> to figure out. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so not yeah, not really, but maybe, and or we don't know is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have a question. This is Joanna. Um, so obviously you were developing the idea for Social Hour long before 2020, but what was that experience like launching in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know yet. We, we yeah. both get, you know, it was, uh, it was crazy. You know, we, we finished our pitch deck to raise a little bit of seed capital, like on February 28th or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it was, uh, and it was this whole whiplash thing, uh, it, it, uh, just in a vacuum of social hour. And obviously the whole world was going crazy. And it was like, I was like, okay, so this thing that I poured my heart and soul into for the last like few years is now just never going to happen. And I just felt crushed, you know? And then the next week it was like, spirits off premise are up 120 percent and the leading category is canned cocktails and so then it was like ah now it now we really got to get moving and but then of course how are you gonna you know who wants to invest in something and uh so that was uh very and then yeah some people who had maybe pledged to invest were not able to because they're in the sort of the bar and restaurant world which obviously has been devastated um by the pandemic so that was an, an initial challenge and then um and then I have no other real frame of reference of what it would have been like to not launch the pandemic. So, <laughs> you know, it you know to actually of... be able to have a party and see people right. and taste them right. on it. You know, I mean, getting out and sell it, you know, it was hard because most liquor stores, you know, you couldn't even go inside. So how do you, you know, trying to sell the people with a mask on <laughs> from afar, um, was you know it definitely proves challenging so it was it was a lot more challenging than it should have been um and we were kicking ourselves for you know taking such a long time because we're such perfectionists um that you know had we had we just even six months earlier been ready to go (laughs) yeah it would have been nice um had it been we've been out in april 2020 but you know yeah 2020 Hey, this is Tim here. And um, yeah, I just wanted to follow up on that there because, you're, you know, we're, we're kind of on the subject of, of funding and whatnot. And also this, you know, being a really like long term plan and long in the coming, not just because of the pandemic. Um, but one thing we've noticed at Vine Pairs, it seems like there's this kind of new wave of entrepreneurs in recent years, um, particularly are, are really kind of notably women led. Um, and we that got us wondering and we were speaking about it in a meeting earlier today, which is like, is there a reason for this other than the kind of the appeal of these products or is there, is there kind of easier access to funding these days? Have things changed on that front? Um, You know, is that something that's in play right now? Is that something you can chat about? For, for just female founded companies, you mean? And also, you know, just the, the canned and RTD space. So, so not just female, like, and founded, right. but also, yeah, like these innovations as well, too. I think we're seeing both of these these kind of phenomenon hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, 
I'm not sure why why that is. Um, I, I mean, I'm opening and running bars is very challenging, and you know, I mean, I think one of the number one questions I've received in my career is is you know, what's it like to be a woman in a male-dominated, you know, industry, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. But, I, you know, I mean, I, I wonder if uh, it it was just in, you know, an, a space that, that women who were into cocktails felt that they could have success with um, and have a little bit more of a normal, you know, work life, right? You can mm-hmm. still be in the cocktail industry, but it almost, you know, turn it into a nine to five job and, mm-hmm. you know, and reach beyond your brick and mortar. It's like, you know, with a bar, you can only make as much money as you can make inside, inside your space. Um, with a product like this, if you do it right, um, you know, it, it, it's your reach is kind of endless. Um, but, you know, as to why there are a lot of women in it, I'm, I'm really not sure. Women know what, What's up? <laughs> they have good talent. <laughs> you know, <laughs> true. You know, they're, I mean, just good at, they're just good at this. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that I think trying to figure out I was these drinks. Yeah, I think that. Uh, I mean, I've uh, I'm probably just being lucky enough to you know work for Julie. Obviously, I'm just Clover Club has always had uh, plenty of female bartenders, and it's been great. And I mean, and I'm not trying to be political saying this, but I do feel like their palates are kind of better. Um, I don't know if they're just, I don't know. I just think they really, uh, it's just, if I, you know, at face value, they, they just really know what's up. Um, so they should be getting out there and, and, you know, cause this category needed to be reinvented, you know, uh, it was, mm-hmm. I, I kind of think it's amazing that it took this long and I don't think we'd be near to where we are if it weren't for the pandemic, you know, basically pushing the category forward. Yeah. Um, so it's about time. And I think a lot of people are like, hey, there's an opportunity here of this kind of wide open space that no one's really been developing. And so now and now everyone's getting in and it's, mm-hmm. it's now really intense. So, so I have a question for you guys. Uh, it's Adam again. So how much have you thought about that? Tommy saying everyone's getting in. Obviously, it's only a matter of time before the huge brands get in. And right. there, it's and all, already and all happening, of a sudden, yeah. Exactly, right? I've seen Tanqueray's yeah. gin and tonic, I feel like, recently. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a good thing for, for the category, you think? Is that going to help more people see canned cocktails? Is that a bad thing? Because maybe they may not be as delicious as the stuff that you guys are doing because it's more craft and bespoke and someone may have a bad experience. I know that's that was always the fear on the craft beer side, right? Is that the first mm. craft beer that someone might have is from a macro player and it may not be a great experience. And so they're like, oh, I don't like craft beer. Um, I'm curious if you thought about that at all, or it's just such early days, like who, who cares at this point, just head down, do your own business. Right. I think the thing that's interesting about the large brands that are, that have released things like Tanqueray, you know, they did their gin and tonic is that the, their percentage of alcohol is like at 5%. So, you know, mm-hmm. they're almost trying to compete with your, you know, uh, a lot of these, you know, different malt beverage kind of drinks, because at 5%, you can be sold in like target, you know what I mean? So for Mm -hmm. them, it's not, it maybe, you know, it's not worth it for them to put out a 11.5% gin and tonic. That is a real bar bar gin and tonic with two ounces of gin and eight ounces of tonic, which is what ours is. Um, You know, at, at 5%, you're, it's a much, the percentage of gin is much less. Um, But, you know, I, I think that that is an interesting thing, uh, but it also sort of, makes their product very different from from ours 
Yeah. It's almost like there, there's like a white claw competitor totally. be, being sold as gin and tonic. Exactly. I also, I also think that w- what is kind of a nice situation for us to be in is that there aren't any like classic legacy brands in the RTD space. I mean, you know, there, yes, there's Tanqueray and there's Ketawan and whoever, um, and they are having their Tanqueray line of canned cocktails, but like Tanqueray is never going to make like a Manhattan you know, right. and that allows us like all this autonomy to be like, hey, we're cocktail makers first and we work with the suppliers and the spirits that we want to. And like, this is like what we do. We make cocktails. And that is, that's something that kind of shields us. I, at least it is, allows us to come with a different, a differentiation point um, compared to those larger brands. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's going to be really interesting. And I think everyone's still figuring out like, what do people want? And I also think that it's, it's going to split into different subcategories. I think that we are definitely trying to come in as like a premium bar quality, proper proof cocktail. Uh, you know, not everyone is going to want that. And uh, some people are only going to want that. Um, and they, and so I think everyone's still, and consumers are still like just searching around trying to figure it out. I think the thing what Julie just touched on that we need to is think it's important for social hour. And a lot of the people in our position is to, try to communicate and help educate consumers like the difference, like why malt versus spirit based is a meaningful difference and why ABV is a meaningful difference, not just in terms of how hard it's going to hit you, but in terms of what a proper cocktail is. And that's still all kind of being worked out. So Tom, I mean, you may not answer this uh, because it's getting to R and D, but I'm curious because you sort of hinted other products coming. Um, You guys have three cans now. Um, I think you, you know, we've had a few, two other, uh, RTD brands. We talked to not on the end of drinks podcast, but on, uh, just, a you know, our, our sort of, uh, next wave podcast that we do during the, the regular vine pair episode. Uh, we talked to craft house and St. Agrestus and both of them have gone into box, which yeah. I actually, when I saw it, I was like, this feels so obvious and also brilliant. Have you guys thought about that or other formats in general, you know, large bottles, things like that, where as you're saying, you're making a proper cocktail, I can buy it and not worry about the cocktails when I have a dinner party, when this pandemic is over and just know that I'm getting, you know, Julie Reiner and Tom Macy approved cocktails. Yeah, We, we actually, well, we, we did yeah. talk about boxes <laughs> and then, and um, so Charles Jolie is a very good friend of mine and somebody who I've worked, I, I judge a lot of cocktail competitions with him and, you know, we travel around in normal times together, you know, and, and uh, so Tom and I were like, wouldn't it be cool if we could do like almost like box wine, but a, but a box. Co- and we we're like, Oh yeah, we should really work on that. And then like a week later I saw a picture of craft house. I was like, damn it, Charles. Yeah. <laughs> But the thing, the problem though, is that um, those well for us, like th- their cocktails are, you know, more sour style or in right. the case of Craft House or St. Agrestus is spirit based. So their serving size is like three to four ounces, whereas a gin and tonic is about eight, which is what ours is. So the TTB allows for the largest spirit size to be sold is uh, 1.75 liters. Actually, there's a new, now it's 1.8, uh, but you can, that is a, one for one problem it's not a ton of gin and tonics you, that's can't fit too many and also carbonation is a huge issue mm-hmm. um that's the whole we want ours to be perfectly carbonated all the way through so with that is you know a kegged gin and tonic would be amazing but the ttb doesn't allow anything larger for spirits which ours technically mm-hmm. is more than 1.75 liters um so i'm i've definitely searched around of could we you know a three gallon keg or something but um like those little Heineken kegs, like that's what I want. 
but those I think are <laughs> three liters or something. Yeah. So that is a challenge, but I mean, mm -hmm. and with, you know, things are still in development, but you know, there's a lot of cocktail styles out there and, you know, when if Julie and I have our druthers, like we really want to expand into different uh, styles and uh, kind of build out a whole cocktail menu. And so everything's on the table still. That's awesome. Well, Julie, Tom, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of End of Day Drinks. It's been awesome to have you both to, to hear about what you guys are building and how you got to this point has been really, really interesting. Can you tell everyone who's listening how they can find the cocktails now? Yeah, um, you can go to socialhourcocktails.com and right on the Hour Cocktail page, uh, you can uh, you can add it to your cart and uh, ship it to most states uh, in the U.S. Um, retail, we're just available in uh, New York and New Jersey right now, but in 2021, we're moving to some new states and we'll be making announcements soon. So uh, yeah, we're coming to serve you all drinks. So please check <laughs> them out. Awesome. Thank you both so much. Thank you yeah, so much for having great. us. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of EOD Drinks. If you've enjoyed this program, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show. And tell your friends. We want as many people as possible listening to this amazing program. And now for the credits. End of Day Drinks is recorded live in New York City at Vine Pairs headquarters. And it is produced, edited, and engineered by Vine Pairs Station Director, yes, he wears a lot of hats, Keith Beavers. I also want to give a special thanks to Vine Pairs co-founder, Josh Mallon, to the executive editor, Joanna Schiarino, to our senior editor, Kat Walensky, our senior staff writer, Tim McCurdy, and our associate editor, Katie Brown. And a special shout out to Danielle Greenberg, Vine Pairs art director who designed the sick logo for this program. The music for End of Day Drinks was produced, written, and recorded by Darby Seaside. I'm Vinepair co-founder Adam Teeter, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.